BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Calmer overnight conditions have led to a slowing spread of the Dixie Fire as it continues to burn across Northern California. The blaze has blackened nearly 490,000 acres, making it the second largest wildfire in state history. Crews were able to take advantage of cooler conditions due to smoke covering much of the fire this weekend. But a drying trend starts today with a return of warmer weather and windy conditions. Joe Gileswood is an incident meteorologist for the Dixie Fire. It's actually quite clear on on parts of the west. Uh, So we're not seeing nearly as much smoke this morning as we have seen. So I would expect things to get going a little bit earlier, that inversion breaking a little bit earlier than it has over the past day or so. And there is some good news to report from Plumas County, as the sheriff's department there has confirmed to the California report that all four residents of the town of Greenville, who had been unaccounted for, have been located safely. The historic Gold Rush town was overwhelmed by the fire last week during red flag conditions. Crews are working to add containment, particularly to the northeast, after the town of Janesville was placed under a mandatory evacuation order over the weekend. Thousands remained evacuated from their homes in Plumas, Butte, Lassen, and Tehama counties. And the blaze has destroyed over 600 homes and other structures. Statewide, CAL FIRE reports over 8,500 fire personnel are battling 39 new wildfires. Taken together, they've burned 867,000 acres of California. And a federal judge has ordered the utility Pacific Gas and Electric to explain its role in potentially starting the Dixie Fire. Judge William Alsup, who has been overseeing PG&E's criminal probation, wants video and additional details from drone operations conducted over the forest on the day the Dixie Fire started. The company has until August 16th to comply. PG&E filed a report with state regulators last month, notifying them that Cal Fire is inspecting its equipment as the possible cause of the Dixie Fire. A tree came in contact with a PG&E power line near where the fire is believed to have started. The utility's equipment has been responsible for several wildfires in Northern California in recent years, including the state's deadliest, the Camp Fire in 2018. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just 
what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio is always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Let's turn to housing. Faced with a national homelessness crisis that grew worse during the pandemic, cities across the country are opening so-called tiny home villages for the unhoused. Often placed on vacant city-owned parcels of land, the villages consist of collections of small modular aluminum shelters. Think fancy garden sheds that can house one or two people each. Los Angeles has been especially aggressive in opening tiny home villages, and the California Report recently visited one in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. Behind fences and privacy screens blocking views from the street, the homes are partially painted in soft pastel colors and arranged in neat rows with walking paths between them. It gives the place a kind of summer camp feel. Julio Paz is the program manager here and showed us inside one tiny home. So inside, every unit has an AC unit like this. They have their outlets. This right here is a light. Shelving. Shelving, right? Um, there's two beds in each one. That you could fold up here. Yeah, so this, these are folded up. So right now, if it's a single individual, we're just kind of keeping them uh, in one cabin due to the COVID restrictions and everything, right? It's uh, better than a tent. It's Way better than a tent, especially in this heat. Like other tiny home villages, the 60 residents living here are also provided with shower and laundry facilities, common areas for eating and socializing, a dog run for those with pets, and Wi-Fi. On-site mental health and addiction treatment services are also available. Before moving here, 44-year-old Damian Brown was sleeping on the sidewalk a few blocks away, where he had no protection from the elements. I was just on a sleeping bag on the ground. Really? Nothing I, nothing to cover you? No, I had covers. I had one blanket. So how does this compare? Oh, this is <laughs> like the Ritz, man. They got all your needs taken care of. You really don't, you know, want for anything here. But in exchange, residents like Brown have to follow some rules. There's a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. A security guard wants people before they come in. And drugs and alcohol have to be left outside in storage lockers. And you don't feel like, you know... You're under somebody's thumb here. At first I did. At first you did. Yeah, at first because I wasn't used to it, that structure again. So it took me a minute. Along with Los Angeles, tiny home villages have opened in the city of Riverside and in Sonoma County. Oakland is building its first village, and the mayor of Sacramento has announced plans to build villages in his city. Why the sudden interest? Desperation to find fast, if partial, solutions to homelessness, says Rowan Van Sleeve of the nonprofit Hope of the Valley, which operates the tiny home village we visited. 
This site here took about 87 days from the day the tractors first rolled in to set the site up to the day they gave us the keys to start welcoming guests. And that's absolutely really warp speed compared to a lot of other housing projects that go up. Some of our bridge housing projects take over two years. These sites can be done in 90 days. But there are criticisms of tiny home villages. Chief among them is the fact that tiny homes aren't really homes at all. They're short-term emergency shelters and not permanent housing. The people living in the villages are supposed to transition to long-term housing within three to six months. But given rental cost realities in California, some tiny home village residents like Alexander Blake say that's probably not possible. I think I'm going to be stuck here for years is what I really think because... Our housing is insane. Uh, the the prices keep going up. With the money I'd make from a disability, it's it's only seven hundred dollars. So there's not much you can get in LA for seven hundred dollars a month if you even spend all of your money on that. Hope of the Valley's Rowan Van Sleeve says his nonprofit, in cooperation with the city of Los Angeles, will do everything it can to help tiny home residents find permanent housing. Meanwhile, Hope of the Valley is busily planning more tiny home villages in and around LA. All of our tiny home sites, all seven of them that are guaranteed to open this year, we will have approximately a thousand beds across the San Fernando and Antelope Valley inside tiny home cabins. And Van Sleeve predicts that tiny home villages that open this year will still be needed and filled with homeless residents for at least another decade. If you want to see images of the tiny home village we visited, I have some photos posted on Twitter. That's at Saul KQED. The Tokyo Olympics wrapped up this past weekend with the U.S. leading in the overall medal count. One of those medals was won by Brian Burroughs from San Diego County. He got a bronze for trap shooting. And Brian joins us now. What was your Olympic experience like? Uh, Life-changing, honestly. Uh, It's just one of those crazy trips where you go, uh, you leave, and you come back, and you've accomplished something that you've worked on for your entire life, and... It still hasn't really fully hit me, but it's, uh, it's been a good couple of weeks. Has there been a single minute that's gone by, honestly, where you haven't thought to yourself, hey, I'm an Olympic medalist? Actually, there's a bunch of minutes where I forget that I am, and then I look over and I see it or I feel it in my pocket because it never leaves my side now. And uh, I'm like, wow, I medaled at the Olympics. Kind of surprises me. Let's talk about the Olympic Games and COVID. These Olympics were staged at a very bizarre time in world history and public health history. Did that affect it in any substantial way for you? Did you think you had a strange Olympics? Did you had you think you had something less than a normal Olympics? I don't know about less than normal Olympics, but it was different than what I thought it would be. From the respect where there was no crowd, there was no... Nobody was cheering. There's nobody in the stands. You know, you think about when you, you're you on the podium and you raise your hand and you're super excited and you look out into, you know, a screaming crowd and all that energy that you're feeding off of. And we just didn't really have that. You know, there's maybe 10 people in the stands. So that was different. And there's cameras all around, which was great because my family and friends got to experience that with me. But It was just different in that sense. It was quiet. And how about life back in the Olympic Village? Were you able to meet other athletes, both from the U.S. and from other countries? Do you think you had a good amount of interaction with with other people competing there? 
Um, for the most part, uh, the countries and the teams they kept to themselves. And, yeah, it's fair enough, too. You know, it's every person is a potential to take you out of the Olympics. You know, if you test positive, they test positive. So I definitely got to spend some time with some of the other U.S. athletes, water polo, baseball, things like that. But the other countries, outside of going to the shooting range, we didn't really get to spend too much time with the other And that is the California report for Monday, August I know you're still wrapping your head around the experience. As always, you can listen to us on our daily podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts and think about subscribing to it. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day, and we'll talk tomorrow. Well, I say once you're an Olympian, you're an Olympian forever. There are no past Olympians. So I've entered into a fraternity of sorts as part of the Olympic, you know, being part of the Olympics and there's different events and there's a whole, I guess, society of Olympians. So that's one way that my life, I guess, has changed, but just being able to tell my family, friends, my kids, my grandkids and show them that I went to the Olympics and I medaled, I think it's just going to be, you know, a change to my life forever and maybe open some doors that wouldn't otherwise be open. But it's just fun to experience and share that that moment and the, the, an Olympic medal with other people. You know, I try not to like show it off, but I do want to like show people like, hey, this is what a medal looks like because not many people have held one or seen one. So um, I definitely like to show other people what it's all about. All right, that was Brian Burroughs, Olympic bronze medalist in trap shooting for the United States. Brian. Thanks so much for joining us today. And more importantly, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. And that is the California Report for Monday, August 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. As always, you can listen to us on our daily podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts and think about subscribing to it. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day and we'll talk tomorrow. Support for the California Report comes from SF MoMA, presenting the exclusive U.S. exhibition of Nam June Beck, a visionary global artist who bridged art, music, performance, and technology. Learn more at sfmoma.org. California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care on the web at chcf.org voices. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetta from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.